I think it's important for people to think about the cannabis issue holistically and to think about how it does fit into all of those parts of life. And legalizing cannabis is part of legalizing being black in the United States because criminalizing cannabis has a hell of a lot to do with criminalizing being black. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. Today, we have a really interesting conversation. Um, there's been a lot of talk about marijuana usage and even some people getting banned from Olympic sports because of, of marijuana usage. So we thought, you know, because the black community has obviously been affected a lot by marijuana, it is actually very fitting for our platform to do a conversation around it. And we have another great guest on our show to talk about really how we became synonymous with black culture. But not only that, kind of talking about the history of why it's illegal here in America. So listeners, today we are joined by John Hudak. He is a deputy director for the Center for Effective Public Management and a senior fellow in governance studies with the Brookings Institute. His research examines questions of presidential power in the context of administration, personnel, and public policy. John's 2016 book, Marijuana, A Short History, offers a unique up-to-date profile of how cannabis emerged from the shadows of counterculture and legality to become a serious, even mainstream public policy issue and source of legal revenue for both businesses and governments. In it, he describes why attitudes and policy have changed and what those changes mean for marijuana's future place in society. So, John, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be here, guys. Awesome. Awesome. So, John, just to kind of go off of that, you know, our first segment is kind of talking about the early perceptions and uses of marijuana. And, you know, I, you know, I always would say that, you know, as a disclaimer, I'm a big advocate for marijuana. I lived in California, so it was, you know, really, um, you know, laissez-faire kind of, you know, marijuana laws, obviously. But whenever you think about marijuana usage in America, it's generously, uh, generally not really portrayed in a healthy way. Um, even when you look at its medicinal benefits, people don't really look at those. Um, most people associate marijuana with being lazy and unproductive. And when you take it to our community, it's really portrayed not any, any better. Uh, a lot of our top celebrities, when they smoke weed, it's usually, you know, rappers and things like that where they're degrading women, you know, spending a bunch of money just frivolously. So when thinking about ways like that and how our culture has displayed weed uses, John, um, how has that made it easier for our country to make weed illegal? Because it almost seems like whenever we talk about black people, it's easier for our, com our country to have oppressive legislation. Yeah, well, it's, it's a great place to start this conversation. We um, have a, an institutionalized system of drug laws in this country um, that is not just in place um, to help oppress the black community. They are in place because of the oppression of the black community. They are there to keep black and brown Americans down. It is not just a tool that the federal government and state governments um, have found useful in doing this. It is the design of this system. It is the design of these laws to do this. I mean, the use of the word marijuana in itself um, was there to replace cannabis, which was uh, what it was called for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, because in the southwestern part of the United States, around the turn of the 20th century, there was an influx of Mexican immigrants, um, or uh, what became Mexican Americans as we began to take over territories, and those territories became states. And marijuana sounded more exotic, and thus scarier to white Americans. And that began this conversation. And of course, along the way, uh, uh, policymakers and political actors found it to be effective to oppress the black community. There was a, a long period of time where, or, or some period of time where cannabis was called a jazz drug. Well, yes, jazz musicians early on in the 20s and 30s liked to sing here and there about cannabis, um, but it was a drug for New Orleans and Chicago and Harlem. Um, this was all dog whistle politics, and it became a really effective means of first dividing 
white and non-white Americans, and then oppressing non-white Americans in ways that other parts of the criminal justice system apparently wasn't doing effectively for the cadre of racists running our government. And so this was one more way to use something Americans were scared about to hurt people who look differently than them. Thank you for, you know, for, for explaining that. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the words that we use do hold some power, obviously. We should know that, at least in this country. And, you know, and also in, in the first chapter of your book, you kind of dive into, you know, you really go into really good detail as far as the, what goes into planting and harvesting cannabis, um, you know, the different light cycles and things like that. But you also pointed out that at least in the early United States, you know, hemp had been around for a very long time, which is a derivative of the cannabis plant. And so, um, so like we have been using it in different forms, but it's just like, you know, the, so I guess the question is like, although, you know, marijuana was being used in, in different ways, um, what was the attitude, you know, of citizens of government officials kind of, you know, late 1800s and early 1900s about marijuana and cannabis and just kind of take us back to that time of like, what was the attitudes then? And just kind of how did people see it? You know, how was it being used, you know, often just kind of walk us through that. Sure. And to, to step back even a little bit further, in the 16 and 1700s in colonial America, um, hemp was widely grown, particularly in areas where it thrived. Um, and there were periods of time where the British crown required colonial landowners to grow hemp. It was not an option. It was a requirement to grow hemp because it was so useful, particularly to the British Navy, for sales, for shipping lot, for ship lines, etc., um, and then along the way, and I mean, along the way, cultures have known this for millennia, that there are medicinal uh, elements of the cannabis plant that can be used to help with certain kinds of conditions. And now I don't want to necessarily characterize medicine in the 16, 17 and 1800s as cutting edge um, and necessarily <laughs> proper. But when we look back and, and we see either pictures or we see old bottles um, of uh, cannabis medicines, they are oftentimes being used to treat the same types of symptoms or disorders that they're used for today. So uh, one of the common things is for a shaking palsy. Well, we call shaking palsies epilepsy now. Um, and it's a very common use of cannabis, particularly cannabidiol, CBD. Um, and that was being used for hundreds of years in um, what's now the United States and before, before the United States. It was used for headaches and pain relief. For women, it was used um, to relieve menstrual cramps. It was used for a variety of purposes. Now, some of it was being you know, recommended for absolutely ludicrous things. Um, and that's, you know, the early state of medicine in the United States and around the world. Um, but uh, that's it, it, for, for people who were exposed to, to the cannabis plant, they were typically exposed to it either because it was grown for hemp um, or because it was a medicine on the shelves of apothecaries in, uh, you know, the United States in the 17 and 1800s. And it wasn't until the turn of the 20th century um, that there was this dramatic change and turn against cannabis um, that really wasn't there before. And it's and it's so great that you talk about that, because I can't remember, like when I was at Mississippi State, you know, uh, you know, 2011, 2012, and I had a, a, a classmate who was permanently in a wheelchair and had, you know, really, really bad seizures. And we had a debate within our class about, you know, weed legalization and just about how, you know, with his medication, what he was given wasn't wasn't as helpful to his seizures. But if the doctors in Mississippi could prescribe marijuana, it would be far better for him. But because of the laws, you know, we couldn't do that. And it's just so interesting that we're in a place in our country, even still in some states where obviously it's not medicinally legal, that you're still not, you know, giving people the best medicine. You know, it's almost backwards. You would think that with a great country like this and as abundant as, you know, marijuana is, we would be able to allocate that in such a way to help our citizens. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And with uh, individuals like uh, your friend or your classmate who had seizure disorders, it's it's a story that is true for a lot of disorders. You start prescribing medicines that have horrible side effects. And so that first medicine, which is maybe meant to treat the seizure, also creates two or three other issues for that person for which they need additional medications. And now they're taking cocktails of medications, not just for the initial issue. 
um, a seizure disorder or epilepsy. Um, but for all of the other ripple effect disorders that come out of the use of multiple pharmaceuticals. And I mean, the irony, of course, is, um, you know, if if your friend traveled down the road a little bit to Oxford um, in, in, and was at the University of Mississippi, he would be before the nation's only federally legal cannabis grow operation um, there where all of the cannabis that's used in medical grade research in the United States is grown. It can't be sold to anyone. Um, it can't be, it doesn't go to a dispensary anywhere. It goes to researchers and pharmaceutical companies and other universities around the country. Um, but, you know, there's another layer to it um, too that I think for your audience is going to be uh, important. And that is, we know that cannabis can help a variety of disorders. The FDA has shown us that, you know, hundreds of years of medical research has shown us that. Um, and we also know anecdotally that people respond to it. People say, you know, I'm helped by this. I get relief for whatever issue they're having. Um, and we know, particularly in the Black community, there's a historic skepticism of doctors and of medicine that ties back not just to the Tuskegee experiments, but really to an institutionalized system that has preyed upon um, black, particularly black, but black and brown Americans um, for, for hundreds of years. And that skepticism gets institutionalized. And when you combine that with a lack of access in a lot of areas of this country, um, and I'll say a group that is vastly overlooked are rural black Americans in terms of access to quality, affordable health care. If you can use cannabis, which I bet you there are a lot more, um, there are a lot of black Americans out there who trust cannabis more than they trust the American healthcare system. <laughs> if, if they can use that, have access to that to self-medicate, it's not the best situation in the world. But for for a skeptic of of healthcare, um, if you your options are staying away from medicine entirely, or using something that might help you, like cannabis, something that might help you is better than nothing. And I think that's a story that oftentimes, it, you know, we talk about um, skepticism of American healthcare in Black and Brown communities, but we don't necessarily connect that to cannabis and the opportunities that cannabis can create um, for a lot of individuals. That's a very, that's a very, very good point. You know, it almost sounds like it's a medical, not necessity, but sort of like a, a an avenue of not going, you know, if you don't have, like you say, if you don't have access to a doctor or you don't trust them because they're, it's there. We're seeing it now with the vaccine you find another way with maybe using cannabis um, to, to, you know, help with the ailments that you have. And so it's, it's interesting to me just to hear how, how off, you know, how widespread the use was of cannabis, whether it's hemp or anything else back, you know, going back to the 1600s and where it was, you know, required for people to grow it. Um, I think if you told a lot of folks that today, they would probably think you're lying <laughs> or you just made it up if you say they that. They do. Trust me. They, they hear that feedback. They do think that. Oh, okay. See, there we go. <laughs> and that's, and that's just shows like what a great PR campaign that was run between the 1930s and onward to change the narrative and just completely change the story, the history of this, you know, this plant here to make it seem as though it had no role in American society pre 1930s or before it got into the black community or when Mexican immigrants were bringing it into the country. Um, It's just amazing to me that we can have that wide of a difference between what we thought we knew about marijuana and what we actually know. And Hey, it's been used by a lot of folks before now. So um, really, I really thank you for kind of laying that history out there so folks have a better idea of, you know, that marijuana has been here with us for a long time. You could really say it's been here since the start of the country. So <laughs> it's not going to go away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's probably more Americans who would tell you that, you know, Louis Armstrong had more to do with cannabis than George Washington did. But down the road from where I live in Washington, D.C. at Mount Vernon, George Washington was growing hemp. Um, Thomas Jefferson was growing hemp. John Adams, all the way up in rocky soil, Massachusetts, was growing hemp. Um, but this idea, like you said, that uh, among a lot of Americans because of institutional propaganda, um, that no, it wasn't It wasn't our founding fathers who had anything to do with that. It was these scary black and brown people who were out <laughs> for kids. Like that's what people thought for decades. And, and, and it, like you said, it's, hey, it, I, I wish, you know, 
elected officials these days had as effective of a messaging campaign for good things as elected officials did for bad things in the 20s and 30s and 40s. But but here we are trying to clean up those messes even still today. But no, I think it's been a really, really great um, conversation just to get us started um, because, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about um, weed and, and marijuana, whatever you want to call it and what it does for you, it does to you. But I think whenever we get down to the root of it, um, there's, there's just a lot of unfortunately misinformation surrounding the topic and people just need to drown that out and realize that it does have a place in our society. And we're going to talk about that because you, you, you talk a lot about how marijuana, you know, reform, uh, and criminal justice reform kind of go hand in hand. So we're going to get into that a little bit further. So listeners, we're going to give you your first break. So stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So we are continuing our conversation with Mr. John Hudak. He's the author of Marijuana, a short story, and he is also a senior fellow in governance studies with the Brookings Institute. And so, uh, John, in the first, you know, first segment, we talked a lot about the history of, you know, marijuana and and talked about the widespread use of hemp uh, in the United States, even some of the founding fathers having, you know, grown it, you know, on their own land. And so, but we were talking too that a great, a wonderfully executed PR campaign has been, uh, you know, pushed around here, propaganda really in the United States to where now, there's a fear of marijuana. And so we kind of want to dig into how we got there. And, you know, during the 1930s and in your book, you point this out that around the time of the great, great depression, the the public perception of marijuana really started to change. And and behind that push was one man named uh, Harry Anslinger. If you haven't heard of him, he is the former head of the uh, federal Bureau of Narcotics. He was the really the top drug cop from about 1930 to 1962. So 32 years he was the one behind, you know, uh, pushing this this lie really about marijuana and really scaring the American public into believing that mar- marijuana was a danger to society. But it wasn't just him either. And so I guess, you know, John, the question is, you know, what did, you know, Anslinger and others do and how were they so successful in convincing large swaths of this country, you know, that we was a danger? danger to society and uh, needed to be illegal. And you can also point out too, just how race and racism, you know, really amped up this kind of crusade that they were on. Yeah. As you said, Harry Enslinger was the, the first head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He served in that role for almost 30 years. Um, and he was uh, an avowed racist. Um, he was a teetotaler. He came over to the Bureau of Narcotics from the Bureau of Prohibition. Um, I my guess is, I don't know this for sure, but my guess is he was, um, you know, sad he was putting too many white people in prison for in prohibition. So he needed to find out a way to put more people of color in prison. Um, and he was uh, he was uh, an evangelist when it came to the anti-drug movement in its nascent stages. And he um, really shaped public opinion uh, almost single handedly. Um, through convincing uh, community organizations, police groups, uh, parents' organizations, local-level uh, law enforcement, local-level elected officials, state governments, the academic community, the medical community, and finally, the United States Congress. Uh, and he would testify before Congress saying absolutely outrageous, hateful things about what was where, what communities uh, were uh, suffering from the the drug uh, the the drug scourge. What those communities they typically tended to be black and brown Americans. Um, what those uh, individuals were doing to innocent white Americans, which always lit a fire under elected officials and, and groups. And he manipulated data. He would use anecdotes and and try to make uh, those anecdotes seem like it was the regular. Um, uh, 
level of crime or the regular business within communities. Um, or he would just flat make things up. Uh, and, you know, he would tell Congress that marijuana, the use of marijuana would make people go insane. It turned them into rapists <laughs> and murderers. Um, uh, you know, one of his, his common tropes was that it would um, uh, if a white woman used cannabis, she would forget who she was and, and consider having sex with a black man. I mean, wow. the, the common tropes that we've heard in racist conversations, but these were conversations being had with presidents, with congressmen, before congressional committees, with in newspapers, in academic journals. I'm a political scientist by training. Um, our flagship journal is called the American Political Science Review. Harry Anslinger had an article in there in the 1930s, which was more like an op-ed that you would find on some lunatic right-wing website, um, scaring people about the scourge of drugs. Um, and, you know, he had a lot of allies in, uh, in a lot of areas of the country. He placed op-eds in media all over the country or got others to do it too. And he became a machine, even though he had a staff. He was the face of this um, to really change the way Americans thought about uh, cannabis, how they thought about um, black and brown Americans, and how they thought about black and brown Americans' role relative to white Americans in the communities, the quote-unquote safe communities that they lived in. Right. And that, and I just show, I mean, it was a real full on full court press here of misinformation, propaganda, you name it. And, and part of it too, you know, that we wanted to kind of touch on was that, you know, Anslinger did his work and he was extremely successful in it, but opportunistic politicians, like for instance, the Nixon administration also took advantage of those same tropes and, and playing up the need to, you know, um, we need more police. We need to fight the drug surge. We need to go in and crack down just this heavy handed approach towards fighting, you know, the, the quote unquote drug problem. So can you talk a little bit about what came after Anslinger and just how different entities, you could say conservatives, Republicans attached themselves to fighting this drug war and using it really for political means more than anything else. And also, understanding that if they were able to criminalize the actions or pleasures of the black community, that that was a way of it, it politically, you know, benefited them to do those things. Yeah. You know, it politically benefited um, conservative Republicans and, and Democrats also. Um, this was a bipartisan attack on um, black America. Understanding politicians began to understand how powerful an anti-drug position could be politically. And they they seized on it. Uh, and when you're in a situation where there's a lot of public support behind one issue, that you are in a budgetary environment where, you know, you're throwing, you're happy to throw um, good money after bad, um, which happened throughout the drug war. I mean, one of the most ludicrous things to me about the war on drugs from start to finish is you have these individuals, these drug warriors, Harry Anslinger was just the first among them, going to Congress year after year and saying, we need more money, the drug problem's getting out of control, the drug problem's getting out of control. And no one ever took a pause to say, we keep giving you a ton of money and you're not getting any results, right? I mean, it was policy failure after policy failure to justify spending more money on this drug war. And, and, and that was true for, you know, decades and decades. And so, uh, Politicians really began to understand that you benefited from taking this stance, and it was a complete liability not to. To be painted as soft on drugs or soft on crime uh, was devastating. People lost political office for that, elected office for that. And, you know, that carried through. It carried through to the 1990s. One of the reasons why Bill Clinton was so hard on uh, crime and hard on drugs was that George H.W. Bush in the 1992 presidential campaign mocked him for saying that he had tried cannabis, tried to paint him as this hippie liberal from Yale who was, you know, going to soften all of the quote unquote good work that the Reagan and Bush administrations and the Nixon administrations had done around the drug issue. So he had to overcorrect because he was so terrified of being seen as soft on drugs because that was a political killer for a lot of people. And of course, 
there were a lot of victims in that type of political um, ideology. Uh, and, and those were, as I've been saying, black and brown Americans. Um, but it was, it was a lot of people. It was hippies in the 1960s, beatniks in the 1950s. Um, you know, we all know Richard Nixon kept an enemies list. He had this idea that um, Jews and psychologists were behind, um, you know, the spread of cannabis in the United States. So pretty much anyone Richard Nixon hated, he assumed was associated with cannabis. Um, and, and that, you know, those, those tropes, those, those what we'd call memes today, um, you know, caught on. And, and, and people, uh, you know, would, would read these news articles and buy into it, hook, line, and sinker. I think too often we think of, you know, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter is pushing disinformation and misinformation, and they do. But that's nothing new because there were things in newspapers, um, you know, for decades and presidential speeches that was the same type of disinformation that people readily just accepted and believed and and ingrained in their understanding, if you want to call it that, of how the world works. And and that's how you get to, to where we are. And so, yeah, it became appetizing for elected officials to be as hard as possible on drugs. And we're seeing a softening of that. But let's be honest, in the 1990s, one of the fiercest drug warriors wasn't some Republican from the South, a Democrat from Delaware, who's the president of the United States right now. And he softened himself on this issue um, quite a bit since the early to mid 1990s. Um, But, you know, I think when some people look back at the drug war, um, they think of Nixon and they think of Reagan. Um, but you got to think of a lot of Democrats, too, because this was a this was a, like a, a, a full team, um, both teams uh, really <laughs> going after the same prize. Yeah, full court press, to say the least, for sure. Um, and I think I think that, you know, John, that can't be ignored because a lot of people do say it's all about Republicans and conservatives. But um, we do have, you know, the Democrats controlling the federal government right now. And not a lot is being done on the federal side for marijuana. And in thinking about it, because um, Devin pointed out how it's a, it's a big PR uh, scheme and campaign um, one of the things that I look at is the fact that, you know, this is a lot about job creation. And you talked about this with the, with marijuana and how it can be almost like a way to kind of heal certain communities. And when you think about, you know, the black community, even the Latino Hispanic community, we do have really high unemployment rates and that continues throughout our, our, our racial groups. Um, if we maybe shift the conversation of marijuana to look at how it could maybe help with the labor market, especially when you consider how the labor markets kind of had a shock due to the pandemic, how do you think that conversation, uh, John, would help to make marijuana maybe less taboo and maybe less of a black issue and more about a labor issue maybe? Yeah, it has to be central. Um, it has to be a central part of this conversation. We know that the cannabis industry is one of the fastest growing industries in the world, um, both in terms of the labor market and in terms of percent increases year over year for revenue. Um, it is a real opportunity, like like you said, to help mend some of the problems that the drug war has caused directly or contributed to over time. You know, one of the things that I've found uh, really inspiring. Brookings has a partnership with the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and, and we have an office out there. And I, I go out there quite a bit. And, you know, if you go into a dispensary, um, it's a really young crowd of employees. Uh, and it's a diverse crowd of employees. Um, it is a means of putting a lot of young individuals, especially people of color and women, veterans as well, into decent paying jobs uh, and to start to learn the ropes of a new burgeoning business. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. I've also been into dispensaries that look like, you know, a a white pride rally as well. Um, But the opportunities there for the right business owners um, to recognize that reform is happening now, but reform is happening on the backs of decades of victims of the war on drugs. And, and it's more than just the entry-level employees who's te- who tend to be bud tenders at a dispensary, um, but to create ownership and management opportunities for the communities hit hardest by the drug war is absolutely essential. Um, as reform has started, especially adult use, um, recreational cannabis reform has started, 
most of the ownership tends to be male, pale, and stale. They tend to be old, wealthy, white dudes. <laughs> um, and so there have been real efforts at the state level to essentially force diversification of ownership, to create those opportunities, and not just an opportunity to get a license, but an opportunity to recognize that the institutional racism that was baked into drug policy in the United States also makes it harder for individuals of color to own businesses, to accumulate wealth, to distribute that wealth to later generations, for intergenerational wealth overall um, to grow. And you can't get into the cannabis industry if you're poor, if all else is equal. Um, But if you create incubator funds um, to help uh, those harmed either directly or indirectly by the drug war, and especially the communities that have been harmed uh, the most, then you have an opportunity to make sure that the drug war that criminalized this behavior uh, disproportionately among black and brown Americans is not replaced by a reform world that is dominated by white wealthy men. Um, That's a real struggle. That's a real challenge that's existing in policy and in in the industry on the ground. But it's a battle that has to be won to try to repair the century of damage that the drug war has wrought. Right. And that's and that's why it's so interesting to see how we have this hodgepodge of of reforms that are happening. Some states are moving at different paces than others. Some want to expunge records. Some don't want to do that. So it's really interesting to see it all play out, but it's like happening in different spurts in different states. It really depends on where you live, honestly, with how that, you know, the reforms are happening. So, um, so yeah, I mean, just a really great segment. Again, John, we thank you uh, for putting that history in there. So we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll have one more segment of questions for you. I'm kind of talking about going forward and what the the future looks like for marijuana um, here in America. So we're going to take one last break and we'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our third segment. Remember, we're joined today by John Hudak, author of Marijuana, A Short History, also deputy director of the Center for Effective Public Management with the Brookings Institute. So, uh, John, as we were talking with our third segment, we want to kind of take this thing forward here. And and looking at what our nation is kind of going through, it's almost like a battle for civil rights right now. Um, whether you look at police reform, prison reform, uh, sentencing reform, I mean, everything kind of centers around civil rights. And like I said earlier in the second segment, weed seems to kind of center around a lot of this. Within Congress, we have certain acts like the Moore Act, uh, the Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act. But the way I look at it, that's only like one piece of fixing the equation here. I mean, one of the reports that you publish, you you kind of lay out the other piece in my mind, at least um, you talked about the justice department designating communities as drug war affected communities. And you lay out a lot of different positions of how that could really work to transform uh, a lot of communities who were affected by weed uh, prosecution. So uh, John, you know, could you just kind of explain to our listeners how policies like the Moore act and such coupled with what you're talking about with implementing restorative justice could really help communities of color. I like where you started by uh, mentioning that this is a civil rights issue. And of all of the many civil rights issues that we're talking about right now, um, police reform, racial justice generally, criminal justice reform specifically, even voting rights, you can't have any of these conversations without talking about drug reform generally and cannabis reform specifically. There's a lot of people who lose their voting rights because they get rung up on cannabis charges. There are a lot of people who miss a lot of opportunities because they their entry into the criminal justice system was for getting busted with a joint. Um, and, you know, it, it becomes something that is comprehensive for an individual. 
in terms of affecting their life and their experience, it also becomes comprehensive for a community as well. When large numbers of particularly young black men are being extracted from those communities by either being put into jail or having opportunities extracted from them, because even if they didn't serve jail time, they've still got a sentence following, um, a, a conviction following them around. Um, that becomes a real problem. And it's part of the reason why uh, communities of color fall behind in the United States, why they are not having the same uh, educational, social, wealth-building opportunities, employment opportunities that white communities have. It's one piece of the puzzle but cannabis reform and drug reform can really unite a lot of those issues. And so what I've argued um, is that, uh, you know, proposals like the MORE Act, proposals like the um, uh, more comprehensive bill that uh, Senators uh, Booker and Schumer put out recently, um, they are looking to tax cannabis and return part of that tax revenue back to the communities that have been hit hardest. And what I argue um, is that those communities, uh, that funding needs to go to those communities in a variety of ways um, to look at how that community has been hurt the most by the drug war. Um, yes, it's it's job creation and, and, and job training is important, but it's investing in schools, it's investing in transportation, it's investing in community centers, it's investing in women, um, it's investing in mothers um, and grandmothers. Um, it is something that needs to be more comprehensive. And, you know, a, a lot of the conversation that I've heard um, around this is talking about record expungement and, and, and things like that. Um, and that's an important first step. But what I always say is record expungement fixes one day in a person's life, the day they got convicted of their crime. It doesn't fix all of the days after that, from the date of conviction to the date of expungement, where that conviction is hurting that person day after day after day. It also doesn't um, help the family of that individual who was harmed in some way, perhaps financially, perhaps it was the breadwinner um, who, who this conviction happened to, to the children of that person, um, to, the, uh, to other people who depend on that person, and then to the community as a whole. And so using that funding to reinvest in dynamic ways, in proven ways, in effective ways that helps start to reverse those, those problems uh, is essential, but especially investing in people. And understanding that because you got caught with a joint when you were 18 does not mean that you're a bad person inherently. And also recognizing that because you got caught with a joint when you were 18 could have also exposed you to other behaviors later on because your opportunities were limited. And so giving people second chances and putting money behind giving people those chances is absolutely essential. So a lot of times we talk about education funding in this country and the terrible um, uh, disparities that exist in education funding. And that those educational opportunities for those who are convicted um, are real. But you know who else it's real for? That man or that woman's daughter who got left behind um, because that person had to do time. The ability of that person, that child, to then go to college is extraordinarily limited. Because we're not investing in the schools that that child goes to, and then that child doesn't have the money to go to college later on. And so when we think more holistically about this problem and the victims of this problem, then we're able to think more holistically about what those solutions look like and what the funding for those solutions need to look like. Very good. Very, very good points. And it shows that it's not just about, like you say, being convicted, being arrested and serving your time in jail, and then we're going to expunge your record. Like, that sounds, that's great. It needs to happen, but there's more to it because, like you say, we literally had, I mean, there were generations of, of Black fathers just yanked out of, the out of these neighborhoods, out of their families. Homes were broken up breadwinners are leaving like this was a far reaching problem. And I think a lot of people in the country want to admit, and we are just now peeling back the layers to see just how bad it is. So I, I, I'm glad you said that it's not just enough to expunge the record and you explain why, because there are far, there are other reaching far reaching effects that a, a simple marijuana charge can have for a 16 year old in our community to get hung up on that. You not have to, that, 
drags around as job opportunities missed and schooling opportunities missed. Cause I'm, I may be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure if you're convicted of even a simple join or a felony or anything, you can't get like student loans. You can't get any kind of government funding for you to go to school. So yeah, there's been some softening around student loans recently, but but those barriers still exist, and they existed for generations. And and your point on um, on fatherhood, Devin, I, I think is an important one, and I'll be I'll be brief on it. You know, we we know I have, I have colleagues at Brookings who do a lot of work on the importance of Black fatherhood and what that means to communities and what that means to children, and we know it's a trope in this country and frankly in a lot of other countries too that you know, the absent black father is mm-hmm. always seen as a choice, right? It's, oh, it's a deadbeat dad and he doesn't want to go anywhere near his family. Well, when you actually dissect what that is, and you, your listeners know this as well as others, but white guys like me often don't understand it and appreciate it. It's like, so let's say someone goes to jail and then they come home and they want to be that father, but their their family lives in a rental unit where they do background checks on occupants or they live in public housing where someone with a criminal conviction is not allowed to, to live, there are barriers to being fathers for those who are convicted. And it's true for black fathers and it's true for white fathers who are in the same uh, situation as well. And so this idea that it's a choice really diminishes the un, our general societal understanding of sometimes just how hard it is to continue that same life after prison um, once you're returning as it was before you got arrested. Absolutely. I mean, like just that, that explains the problem right there. And that's something we all need to understand. So thank you, you know, for painting that picture because, you know, that's something that needs to be discussed. But, um, but our other question too, just kind of talking about how we're moving forward is that this is not just a domestic problem in the United States. This is also an international problem. There are a lot of other countries who have uh, banned marijuana use and, and criminalize it. And even in, you know, whether it's black communities in other countries or, or brown communities in other countries, marijuana use is used as a way to sort of target and stigmatize the community where they're seen as, you know, criminal, dirty, lazy, whatever, because they smoke weed or use drugs. But, um, but and, and what happened with Shakari Richardson, you know, at the Olympics kind of encapsulated the whole problem which is that the International Olympic Committee, you know, does not allow, you know, uh, THC to be in your system, which is weed, basically. Uh, or that means that you smoked weed or done something. And so there really isn't a good reason why the rule exists. You know, there's no research that shows that marijuana makes you a better athlete or anything like that or gives you some sort of competitive advantage. But it has to be that way because other countries have banned marijuana use also. So it's weird where Shakari Richardson can legally smoke it here in the United States in one state, but be banned internationally from competing because it was in her system. So could you just talk about the the global impact of marijuana legalization and just, you know, I guess the question is like, is the rest of the world waiting, you know, for the United States to kind of officially make this federally legal before they, you know, get to, I guess, making it legal in their own countries? Yeah, I think there are a lot of countries that are waiting on America. There are some countries that will will never do it. Um, you know, if we think of like conservative Muslim countries, the likelihood of it happening there is, is probably pretty low. There, there's a lot of countries that China criminalizes drug use in extraordinary ways. It would be difficult to see it happening in a, mm-hmm. in a place like that. More oppressive regimes, um, it, it's harder. But it's important to remember that America led the way on global drug policy, the criminalization of cannabis came in large part because of American leadership on this issue, or what you might consider failed leadership on this issue, though it was quite successful in achieving what they wanted to achieve. And you're right, this went into place worldwide. And it was used to discriminate against a variety of different people in in a lot of countries. So if we think about black South Africans, North Africans living in Spain or in uh, France, if we think about indigenous peoples in Canada, in Latin America, if we think about the Maori people in New Zealand, this is, we have definitive evidence that these groups 
across countries that share one commonality, they ain't white, or they are darker hued than than other people in that country, um, are the ones who uh, drug laws are used to discriminate against the most. And so I do think federal legalization will help move the needle in a lot of other countries. We we saw it a little bit at the state level, right? We, we had Colorado and Washington legalize cannabis in 2012. Um, a year later, Uruguay became the first nation in the country to legalize uh, cannabis um, uh, nationwide. Uh, a few years later, five years later, um, Canada took the same step, becoming the first large industrialized nation um, to, to legalize cannabis. Um, I think Canada taking that step is a bold one, but there's no substitute for American leadership on this issue, particularly when the foundation of that policy choice was due to American leadership. And so, like I said at the beginning of this answer, I don't think America legalizing is going to suddenly flip the world, but I think American legalization is really going to make first um, the international community, international organizations like the UN and others think differently about it. And it's also going to make particularly smaller economies that are a bit more dependent on the United States more comfortable legalizing because then they won't fear the kind of backlash that the American economic system and the American government can levy on a smaller, more dependent economy. Right. And that just shows the the... I'm glad you, you said that because it shows that it's not just a United States problem, but we're the reason why a lot of the world, you know, believes that marijuana is some kind of, you know, substance that needs to be banned. But quickly before we go on a break, I just wanted to get your thoughts on it because we talked a little bit about the current president, Joe Biden, and how he was pretty tough, very tough on crime, headed up the, you know, the crime bill of the 90s and was an inter- you know, integral part of getting that passed and put together. But even last year, when people were asking him about legalizing marijuana, he still has not come out and full throat or supported that. I don't think he ever will. But just, you know, just kind of give us your thoughts on what we could or could not see from the Biden administration or even just Congress in general, as far as the possibility of we being decriminalized on a federal level. Yeah, I mean, the president is clearly not the biggest fan of cannabis. Now, he could be tougher on it right now as president than he has been so far, but he could be much more reform oriented. Um, You know, what we know about uh, the public in the United States is that older Americans are much less supportive of cannabis reform than younger Americans are. It's important to remember Joe Biden is the earliest born president we have had since 1992. Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, all younger than Joe Biden. Joe Biden is from a generation of Americans that are the least supportive of cannabis reform um, in the United States. He's also a dad of a son who's had a drug problem. Um, And we know that some people who have children who have drug problems or have experienced a substance use disorder themselves, some of them think of cannabis as a modern miracle. Others think of it as one more drug that can cause those types of problems that my family experienced. And he was a politician who was raised in a period where the tough on drugs approach was important. Now, I'm not going to get inside the president's head and try to figure out why he is uh, he thinks the way he thinks. But I do know that there are a lot of Americans who have characteristics like him who come out on what a lot of people think is the wrong side of the marijuana issue. Now, all that said... Um, you know, he could do a lot more. He needs to do a lot more. He needs to think about this as a criminal justice issue, as a civil rights issue, um, as in as as a racial justice issue. He needs to think more uh, dynamically about the communities that this hurts and the communities who have helped him politically and personally over the years. Uh, and and once he can get there, I think he can understand and appreciate that even if he doesn't like cannabis legalization, he should hate cannabis prohibition. And that is just two sides of a coin that I feel the president doesn't fully appreciate yet. Now, all that said, uh, it might be a surprise to to some of your listeners. Donald Trump was the most pro-cannabis president in terms of his rhetoric 
of any president we've had in modern time, probably any president we've ever had. <laughs> um, and he didn't do a damn thing about it in four years. As someone who works in and around um, uh, you know, the cannabis activist community, I would hear conservative cannabis advocates tell me from January 20th, 2017 through January 20th, 2021, that Donald Trump's secret plan to legalize marijuana was just around the corner. And they had a conversation, <laughs> had a conversation with someone in the White House who guaranteed them this. And I was waiting for four years for that secret plan to legalize cannabis to, to happen. And it doesn't. And so all that is to say, I, I don't think that having a, a more pro-cannabis approach guarantees that you're going to back reform. And I also think having an anti-cannabis history doesn't mean you're going to be the worst, um, uh, the, the worst nightmare for the cannabis community. Like I said, I'd love to see Joe Biden do more. I'd love to see him think about uh, this issue in a more nuanced way. Um, but if we can get through four years or eight years with him not screwing it up worse, it's better than him screwing it up worse. Um, but ultimately, I think it's people around him, like the vice president, um, and, and other advisors he has in the White House who are more behind the scenes, who know this issue, who understand this issue and understand the harm that it's caused. And they have to get to him. The president has a lot on his plate right now. The Afghanistan is literally on fire. Um, you know, we have a pandemic. We're pulling ourselves out of a, a recession. There are a lot of cannabis advocates who think this is an important way to deal with a lot of issues that we have. But for Someone like Joe Biden, I think he sees this as a distraction. Hopefully, once things stabilize a little bit in this administration, he can start to think about some of the issues that he probably thinks of as more ancillary, like cannabis. Um, and I think there's a lot of voters in a lot of states that um, uh, you know propelled him to the White House who were looking for the same thing from him. And and honestly, John, just to end our segment here, if if people can kind of think more like you, because in your book you talk about how you're not necessarily an advocate for marijuana, but rather you like the 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 study about the policy and why it's kind of an issue within our country. I think that a lot of people, for some reason, whenever they think about marijuana reform, they're thinking about I endorse marijuana, but you don't necessarily have to endorse it, but you can endorse all the things that it could fix. So um, we'll end it on that. And when we come back, John, we just want to get your final message, which is just our way to kind of end our episode and send it off to our listeners. So stick with us, listeners. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back here. Let's get into it. Our final message here. Remember, we're joined today by John Hudak, author of Marijuana, A Short History, also senior fellow and a deputy director with the Brookings Institute. Um, John, it's been an awesome, awesome conversation. Um, just to kind of end off our episode, we always do, like I said, a final message to send this off to our listeners and to set the stage, um, in recent research from the Pew Research Center, about 91% of Americans support weed legalization, whether that be medical or recreational use. Um, more and more states have really started to take on this issue and make it legal within their borders. And as we've talked about it, weed legalization is centered towards criminal justice reform, police reform, prison reform, voting rights, taxation, the list goes on and on. And like we've talked about, we have a lot of people who are advocating for, but not really in the proper way, which is what we've said, really advocating it more about civil rights. So, John, for your final message, um, leave us with something that gets people to really look past all of the negative stigmas of marijuana and really look more closely at the facts of how reformation to this industry will improve black and brown communities for generations to come. You know, I think one of the, the best examples I can offer is last August, um, I guess two Augusts ago now, um, I went to the, the Rally for Our Lives down on the National Mall that Reverend Sharpton um, organ helped organize and, and a lot of people spoke at, um, in, including George Floyd's um, brother and, and others. And I was watching a woman walking down uh, by the reflecting pool in front of the Lincoln Memorial with a sign that said, um, 
without an abbreviation, it said, F marijuana legalized being black. And I, I, and she was a woman of color, a young woman of color. And I understood that sentiment. I, I completely understood. And as, like I said, as a, as a white guy, um, you know, I don't experience what um, she probably experiences on a very regular basis in terms of being black in America. But I think it's important for people to think about the cannabis issue holistically and to think about how it does fit into all of those parts of life. And legalizing cannabis is part of legalizing being black in the United States because criminalizing cannabis has a hell of a lot to do with criminalizing being black. And I think it's true for that woman holding the sign. It's true particularly of older individuals who don't necessarily think about how this fits into all parts of society and all parts of operating as being a person of color in the United States. And when we start to step away and think about who you know who's gone to jail, you know, a good number of them probably went to jail for weed. And then how does that end up carrying out? And when we start to think about that individually and then as groups and then as a society, it's easier to understand that issue. It's easier to pull those stigma down. And it's easier to start to, as I said in the la- at the end of the last segment, it's easier to think about um, the real dichotomy being what is worse, legalization that can come with its risks or prohibition. And most people in the United States we know now think prohibition is the problem and people need to start to elevate that and connect it to the other issues that they care about, economic justice, racial justice, police reform, prison reform, voting rights. And when we do that, we can have that broader conversation about improving the experience that every American has in every corner of America, rather than thinking about these issues as siloed and not having anything to do with each other. That's exactly right. I mean, yes, being black in America and and weed and marijuana policy go hand in hand because and we didn't make it that way. I think that's a, a thing that people need to understand too. listening to this show. We're not here advocating for marijuana use. We're not saying it's a perfect drug. It doesn't do anything to you. That is not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that there was a full court press, public relations campaign, propaganda campaign, whatever you want to call it, of of government officials at the state, local, federal level that made it their mission to attach a stigma to marijuana, but also to the black and brown people that live in this country and paint it and distort it to where now we're having to fight over its use, you know, medically when it's been proven over and over again that it can be medically helpful to a lot of people in this country. Yet we're having to still fight and argue over, you know, the the stigmas and, and the myths about marijuana use. And so we didn't make it that way, but it's our job to fix it. And so we have to do more than just expunging people's records. And, you know, I just appreciate you coming on. I'm, you know, I love the book. I haven't written, uh, read, you know, read it, but I did read skim through, um, and, and see some of the things that you put in there. And it's something that everybody needs to read and understand how we got to this point, because we didn't just wake up and ban weed in one day. This was a, you know, concerted effort And, you know, the politicians in the country took advantage of it. You know, this is something we've seen over and over again. Um, You know, a lot of people ran on the tough on crime uh, mantra and they got elected. Current president, you know, used to be one of those people and he got his flack for it. You know, the, the community still supported him, but it was not without going kicking and screaming to the ballot box to say that you need to do something about this. And so hopefully as we move on, we'll see more states legalize it. And understand that what we thought about weed actually is probably not the complete picture. And what we were taught in school and all the drug ads that you saw was not quite accurate when it came to what it will do to you if you use it. So it's a nuanced conversation that needs to be had. But um, just my little tidbit was just thank you for for pointing out, bringing that history of, of marijuana use in the country. And hopefully we can kind of move forward with a better understanding of how we got here. 
Yeah, John, and and my thanks. Um, I I'll definitely come out more and say, you know, especially because I'm going to be a public official or I'm going to run for office at one point. I definitely endorse, you know, legalization, whether it's medical or recreational. And I hope we definitely get there as a country, um, because I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of benefits, not only on the medical side, but looking at the taxation side. I think California last year alone had like a billion dollars of revenue from the taxes in marijuana. And that's just a lot of money that, you know, black and brown communities, you don't have to look at it as like a black issue. It's Latino, whoever um, could benefit from the money that uh, that, you know, we could, you know, try to build from having a more um, robust system of how we look at weed. So we just appreciate the conversation and our listeners can't, um, see who you are, but we hope that everyone goes and looks you up. Um, you know, we, we always like to say on the black agenda, we don't like only talking to black individuals because, you know, we have a lot of people who are allies and advocates. So we appreciate you as a, you know, white American really being an advocate for our community, uh, within this issue and a number of issues because we know that with your, uh, research with the Brookings Institute, it goes beyond just uh, marijuana. So we thank you. I wanted to make sure to say that. Thank you for being an ally to us and just really trying to benefit our community. Well, thanks a lot, guys. This has been a really great experience, and I hope it's uh, a good one for your listeners as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So listeners with that, remember that we've been talking to John Hudak, author of Marijuana, a Short History, also a senior fellow and a deputy director at the Brookings Institute. John, thank you for being with us. Uh, Devin and I, we're going to take our last break and we'll come back and do our ending for our listeners. So listeners, you stick with us. Devin and I will be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back, listeners. So as always, we like to give you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the podcast before we get out of here. So. Uh, first up, weekly roundup number 10 is coming to you on Saturday, August 21st. Again, our weekly roundups are our, it's our chance really to give you all the news from the past week, whether that's breaking news, funny news, some weird news even. Uh, we try to put it all to you in a nice, neat package. Um, and that's going to be in weekly roundup number 10. So again, tune in for that on uh, Saturday, August 21st. Uh, we'll be bringing you the news then. And so then after uh, the 21st, we'll be coming back to you with another, another regularly scheduled episode and a really good conversation, kind of building upon what we talked about here today. And so our next episode is going to be coming out and it's going to be all about uh, drug policy. So really diving into this, this war on drugs. And so uh, we currently, you may know, you should know, we are in a, an opioid crisis in addition to a pandemic we're also experiencing a prescription drug addiction problem that is sweeping across the nation. And so uh, we really want to have a, a really good conversation about it. And so we've invited uh, Miss Amy Fedig on the show, and she's from the Sentencing Project. And she's going to be on the show to discuss the war on drugs and, and how that has uh, really shown up in the drug policy. And so we're going to talk all about drugs and the drug policy, the drug war uh, on Tuesday. So make sure you tune in for that. And then also um, you can support us by listening, but you can also donate a little bit of change to us, whether that's a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, depending on how, you know, giving your feeling can help us out. And Adrian's going to let you know how you can do that. Yeah, absolutely, Devin. Um, we say that, you know, listening is really important, but we definitely need those dollars and cents. And I always like to say, listeners, the reason why we need those things is we're really trying to build something here. Um, Devin and I were really good about being committed, steadily doing these episodes, doing the weekly roundups, media kits and all that kind of stuff. But in order for us to really take this podcast to a different platform where we're able to actually affect policy and bring some social justice to the communities we're talking about, we definitely need some donations to really get this thing off and running. The easiest thing to do is just go to our website, blackagendapod.com, click that donate tab. You can start with a dollar, two, three, four, five, um, whatever you want to do, start there. 
We also have some gifts. So as you become monthly patrons, there's different things you'll get, such as shout outs. Maybe you want to suggest a topic to us. Maybe you even want to join us on the show for a conversation. A lot of different things you can do there. In addition to donating to us, we always like to highlight a charity of the month. And for the month of August, we have selected the organization Choose 180. Choose 180 transforms the lives of youth and young adults by partnering with institutional leaders, connecting them with community, empowering them with choice, and teaching them the skills necessary to avoid engagement with the criminal legal system. Choose 180 envisions a future where youthful behavior is decriminalized and young people are offered restorative practices in lieu of traditional prosecution. In place of the school-to-prison pipeline, a community will exist to help young people realize their potential and provide them with the tools necessary to achieve their goals. So great organization. Go to their website, choose180.org. Um, consider maybe even donating to them. But before you do that, go to our website, donate to us. Yes. Help us out. We, we I'm telling you, we will appreciate it. Um, we try to get as much help as we can. Me and Adrian are, are self-funding this thing here. Um, so any kind of help will, will definitely make a difference. And so uh, before we go, we also like to let you know you can talk with us, interact with us, engage with us um, on social media. Our handle is at Black Agenda Pod, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and also on YouTube. We have we do have a YouTube channel. We have tons of great content, including 10 interviews with HBCU administrators and a fantastic conversation uh, with a professor from Georgetown about critical race theory. So again, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Black Agenda Pod. And then also you can search the Black Agenda Podcast on YouTube and you can find us there. And so before we go, we wanted to give one last thanks to Mr. John Hudak, uh, the author of Marijuana, A Short History, and also senior fellow and deputy director with the Brookings Institute. It was a fantastic conversation so we wanted to thank him for giving us his time here um, on the show. And so, again, we want to thank you, our listeners, for staying with us. And so until then, we'll catch you next time. 